Life Audio. Hello and welcome to Kainos Project. I'm Dale. I am Tamara. And we're here to help you tackle ancient truths in everyday settings. Well, social justice has been a hot button issue among evangelicals and really among Americans for the past number of years. And much of the conversation has revolved around really a, a string of high-profile instances of police violence against young black men, the rise of Black Lives Matter, critical race theory, and so-called, quote-unquote, I hate this word, but we'll use it, wokeness. Um, and in fact, there's like an entire cottage industry uh, that has arisen out of this, both within evangelicalism and then in broader conservatism, around this kind of like anti-wokeness. So you have like books, you have conferences, you have sermon series, you have online courses and all kinds of things that have sprung up as money-making endeavors uh, around this whole idea of being anti-woke. But the debate among evangelicals about social justice, it actually spans back more than a century. And a lot of the themes of yesteryear, they kind of crop up in our debate today. So that's what I want to talk about today, is what has been the historic evangelical view on social justice. And when I say social justice, what I'm referring to is the equitable distribution of privileges and opportunities uh, in the society uh, across uh, racial, ethnic, and economic spectrums. And so as we look back on the history of social justice within the evangelical movement, we can see that it has morphed and changed a number of times. And really, at the same time, it has never been monolithic. The view of what is social justice and how should we feel towards it, like that has never been monolithic within evangelicalism, even spanning back uh, a century. But I wanted to look at some of the patterns that we can see that are instructive for evangelicals today as we kind of seek to understand like how our faith should inform our civic engagement and maybe a little bit vice versa too. So that's what I want to talk about today, but we will dive into that in just a moment. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. So... What is the historic evangelical view on social justice? There isn't one. That's the short answer, <laughs> is that there isn't one. There has been a wide variety of historic views, uh, but I recently tried to give the long answer to this question in an article that we'll link to in the show notes, and it's a bit of a monstrosity of an article, but uh, it kind of... It's just like, here's everything I learned in one article, uh, and we'll link to that. But I want to talk about some of what I wrote here on the podcast, uh, because there's a lot of really interesting things to discuss. And we're actually going to start 
in what may feel like a counterintuitive place, which is Charles Darwin. So in 1859, Charles Darwin, he published On the Origin of the Species, uh, which outlined his theory of evolution, and that sent shockwaves not only through the scientific community, but also the church, because if evolutionary theory is true, then what does that mean for Genesis? There's all these kinds of questions. That really began immediately towards the end of the the 19th century uh, when Darwin says, bing, bing, boom, everything evolved from primordial goo and was not uh, created ex nihilo by God. Right. That ran in like um, full contradiction of what the church was teaching and what a lot of uh, Americans held to in the first place. So the like mix of the American foundation and the American beliefs is really mixed within like Christian beliefs. And so if the long held tradition for Christianity is like God created, then Charles Darwin was really pushing back against all of that. Yeah, so that really kind of changed the conversation. And then around the same time, uh, what is called higher criticism began to rise in popularity. And higher criticism is an academic discipline that it began to reexamine what we know about biblical authorship and interpretation. And perhaps uh, most notably, just to give an example of what that looked like, uh, it was this academic movement that gave us the documentary hypothesis, which is uh, an argument that posits that uh, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, weren't actually written by Moses, but were actually compiled from, uh, I believe, four different sources after the Babylonian exile. So we're talking roughly 500 years before the birth of Christ, as opposed to 1,300 years before the birth of Christ, and 700 years after the events that they record actually occurred. And so it was... Uh, it went away from this traditional view that Moses wrote the Pentateuch, uh, basically in the desert before uh, Israel entered the Promised Land, and it said no, he didn't actually write it. There were four different sources that uh, were later compiled, and not, not only after Israel entered the Promised Land, but after they were carried away to Babylonian captivity, and then they came back, and that's when it was finally compiled into what we understand as the Pentateuch. And so, and they were doing that with like all kinds of different things, and so. Those two things, Darwinism and higher criticism, they really began to coalesce into this new theology uh, and this new movement that was called the modernist movement. And the movement was basically an early form of progressive Christianity uh, that eventually went on to uh, deny Jesus' miracles, the virgin birth, the inspiration of scripture, and the literal resurrection of Jesus. And so the modernists, the, this this movement started to gain momentum, and they began to take over a lot of the mainline denominations and seminaries in America. And by uh, 1930-ish, the takeover was pretty much complete. And so you had on the other side the fundamentalists who were conservatives who were trying to get us back to, quote, the fundamentals. Uh, they split and they formed their own learning institutions, their own new denominations, their own conservative institutions uh, within evangelicalism, their own Bible colleges and all these kinds of things. And uh, evangelicals were kind of descended from the fundamentalists. At the time, that the, the term fundamentalist, it wasn't uh, derogatory. Uh, it, it only became so later. I think when there were, there were fissures within evangelicalism where some moved even further to the right and some kind of stayed mainstream, that's when the term kind of fundamentalist became a derogatory. But at this time, fundamentalist evangelical, that's kind of uh, what the, the terms were at the time and the, the nomenclature. 
But then you had at the same time, and you might be wondering, like, okay, what does Darwinism and the modernist fundamentalist controversy have to do with social justice? It has something to do with it, uh, because at the same time, there was another movement in American Protestantism called the Social Gospel. And this also began in the late 19th century as well. And the heart of that movement was to declare the gospel both in word and in deed. And so the movement was focused on evangelism, but it was also focused on social justice. And some of the issues that they focused on were racial justice, poverty, child labor, environmental protections, unionization, and anti-war activism, which to the modern ear right now sound like liberal causes, right. but they weren't at the time. They were uh, causes within, you know, mainline Protestantism uh, that was very much still orthodox. But with the rise of the modernists, many of them had become part of the social gospel movement and were basically starting to say like, hey, we like this social justice stuff, but not so much the gospel proclamation part. And so the social gospel movement came to be seen as really advocating for social justice without gospel proclamation. And so as a result, in response to that, the fundamentalists tended towards trying to counterbalance that by focusing entirely on gospel proclamation to the exclusion of social justice. And it kind of, that got so entrenched even, that even kind of starting to express concern for social justice issues, uh, it became like to be seen as like, you're kind of suspect now. Like your theology is suspect because you are advocating for the same things that the uh, theological liberals are advocating for you know the people that said the bible isn't literal and jesus didn't really raise from the dead you're on the same team as them and so if you're advocating for these social justice issues then you're really uh, quite suspicious to us and so because of that many evangelicals they they became really opposed to like social programs and we kind of saw that uh, come to full bloom with the new deal with uh, president roosevelt in the 1930s, which was this huge package of social programs uh, to help fight poverty in the midst of the Great Depression, if you if that would have happened a generation previous, uh, a lot of the people who uh, would have either supported or even lobbied for that kind of rollout uh, now see it as uh, godlessness, as theological liberalism, and it's something that's n like not only suspect as a policy, but it's actually morally suspect uh, that you would even endorse something like that. And so this association between social justice and heresy, really, it remains strong in the minds of many evangelicals for decades to come, even long after the social gospel movement had petered out. And I want to talk about what happened next when you flash forward a couple of, of decades. Uh, but before we get there, there's so much here that feels familiar, right? Like what, what are some of the modern parallels that you see uh, with opposition to social justice today? Well, we still have the, the rippling effects of um, the social gospel, right? Because you, at that time you had the modernist movement that was happening that they were attracted to what was happening with the social gospel, that they began to water down what good was happening, where um, actual like human needs were being met, as well as the spiritual needs at the same time. The modernist movement took it and, and only wanted to meet the physical needs, which your fundamentalists obviously were outraged and saying, like, you're, you're taking Jesus out of 
um, ministry, essentially. You're taking Jesus out of uh, the heart of what you're doing. And because of that, we want to have nothing to do with what you're doing. So that way there's no confusion about what we stand for. And what we stand for is the gospel. Is, and the Bible. And the Bible. Literally and we're going interpreted. To, yeah. Yeah. And we're going to keep the gospel at the center. We're going to keep the main thing the main thing, right? And because of that, um, just huge swing on the other end where they just didn't want to be associated at all. We still today see evangelical Christians have a sense of hesitancy, have a, like they get squirmy around any kind of humanitarian efforts um, that claim to be Christian as well. They're fine, like supporting things like the Red Cross. Uh, which, I mean, that started as a Christian organization, no longer is. But anyways, but they're fine supporting stuff like that, but not if your local church is trying to do both of that. Um, they want to keep them separate. And that really is a full circle from what was happening when the modernist movement like leaked into the social gospel. And I know plenty of Christians today that continue to say, like, that's not our place to step into. Our role as the church is to just preach Jesus, just share Jesus. Um, but it reminds me of Jesus himself saying, like, what good is it um, if you leave a hungry man hungry, um, but just share Jesus with him? And right, say, yeah. like, be warm and filled, mm -hmm. but you didn't actually, like give him clothes to keep him warm or give him food to fill him up. You just gave him like spiritual bread, right? Which is important. But even Jesus himself is saying we need to care for the physical things. Um, but unfortunately, even today, we see a lot of, um, yeah, just hesitancy, a lot of opposition. Maybe opposition is actually a better word. It's not even people like, I want to do it, but I don't want to do it. You just have people who blatantly are like, that is not the role of the church. That is not what Christians should be doing. Um, and all of it is rooted in the history that you just explained. Yeah, I think what the reference that you were making was uh, in James, where he says, what use is it to say, bless you, be warmed and filled, but you're not doing anything to provide for their needs. Yeah. In, the, in the same uh, you know, theme of the whole letter, which is that faith without works is dead. And we hear this language a lot of like, that's a distraction from the gospel. Like practically living out the kingdom um, mandates mm. they see see as a distraction from the gospel. I think we've talked about this before where the gospel is so narrowly defined to when you die, you get to go to heaven. Right. And they see if you're doing these things, these uh, physical humanitarian efforts, then you didn't really help that person because now they're damned to hell forever because you didn't share Jesus with them. And, um, like make them aware of, uh, Jesus coming to bring eternal life. And I've, I have heard people say that's not helping if we want to give, meet their physical needs. It's only like this short term thing, but as Christians, we're here for eternal life. And that's like, that's our goals. We want to share eternal life and eternal life only. Um, but I think that's just so narrow in the way that you view the good news. Because if the good news is you're going to sit here and suffer and rot, even though we can help you, 
we're not going to, but how I will help you is I'll help you on the other side of eternity. Like it just, it feels so twisted and unkind in a lot of ways and even kind of arrogant, right? Like I see you have a need. I have the ability to meet that. Like I see you're hungry. I see you actually need food in your stomach and I can give you food. But I'm not going to because I know that's not what you really need. What you really need is Jesus so that way you can get into heaven and have your soul saved for eternity. So here, let me share the gospel with you. Um, And you're still going to sit here like with your stomach like eating itself. But I've shared Jesus. I've done my job. Yeah. And I think um, there certainly are. uh, There is a large part of the evangelical movement that does feel compelled to uh, step in where there is extreme poverty and people are starving, or there's other justice issues that we feel comfortable with, uh, whether that is abortion or it's human trafficking. We feel comfortable with saying like, hey, this is part of mm. our mandate as Christians. Point, yeah. But then also when you get into other issues, that's all of a sudden a distraction from the gospel. So like when you get to like um, whether it be economic inequality or racial injustice, now all of a sudden because that is seen as a liberal justice right. issue, now we are squeamish about it. Whereas a quote unquote conservative justice issue would be human trafficking or yeah. uh, abortion. Mm-hmm. We see no uh, issue with melding those things. And, and really all it comes down to is this kind of weird a guilt by association of if if someone who's liberal and and is a, a progressivistic person is for this issue over here that's the thing that we necessarily need to oppose even if it lines up with uh, things in generations past that we absolutely was a no-brainer because we we're all looking at the bible and saying like these these justice issues are present and we need to address them yeah exactly and it's interesting how I know a lot of it is related to um, what is seen as a liberal like side of things and what is seen as a conservative. But in the same um, like thought process is the things like abortion and human trafficking are um, like things that are done to you versus other aspects of like, for example, um, homelessness, right? There's now this conversation that's like well they made those choices Mm -hmm. that is what they've decided to do um fighting against abortion like the baby doesn't have any choice human trafficking like the the kids that are trafficked and oftentimes it's not even just human trafficking it's like child trafficking that we are more um compelled to do something about and that again goes along the lines of like well it's a child like they didn't have a choice in that process so we're gonna help the helpless because they didn't make the choice to have these like abuses done to them, which is, is true. (laughs) But when it comes to things on the other end where we want to view it as somebody made that choice to step into that situation, then we have limits to where we want it, like the efforts we want to deploy out in those areas. Right. And also just an unwillingness to see it as a systemic issue. Uh, We're kind of there's there's an evangelical oh, allergy to that. Yes, we don't want to think that the system it's it's an individual choice and I think that actually goes back to uh the American independent mindset of well, we're Americans and we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and if you can't do that, then that's your own fault because the rest of us have had to do that. Uh even though that's actually not a truth statement because 
not everyone has had to uh, pull themselves up from their bootstraps quite in the same way to people that are living um, below the poverty line and can, will continue to because of the systems that we have in place. Yeah. So really what we've seen so far in the story is that opposition to social justice really uh, came in response to one particular theological movement. What I want to do now is skip forward a couple of decades into the 40s and 50s and uh, talk about not uh, a response to a theological movement, but actually in conjunction with an emerging theological movement within evangelicals and that kind of sets forth a positive vision, kind of further... Uh, concretes this opposition to social justice. Um, so I want to dive into that, but we'll do that in just a minute. All right, so fast forward a decade or two to the 1940s, uh, the 1950s, and uh, a lot of this assumption that social justice is liberal and uh, godless, is it's remaining strong among evangelicals. But then there's this other wrinkle that kind of emerged, and um, that is that American evangelicals increasingly embrace the theological system of dispensationalism, and it kind of served to disincentivize social justice even further. And so dispensationalism, and we've talked about this too, I think, on our Rapture episode, uh, it was originally developed by John Nelson Darby in the mid-19th century, and it was embraced by his contemporaries in America, uh, such as D.L. Moody. Uh, we got the Schofield Bible out of this. Um, and, but the term dispensationalist didn't really become like a self-aware identity marker until like the 1930s, the 1940s. And... Uh, Dispensationalism, just to kind of give a, a, a summary recap of what it is, uh, it offers a premillennial understanding of end times events. That's not the only thing it does, but that's kind of the the operating thing in, in a lot of the way it shakes out in people's you know practical lives. Uh, so dispensationalists, they argue that uh, the world is basically going to hell in a handbasket and is going to continue to do that uh, until the church is raptured out of the world, and then we have the Great Tribulation, and then Jesus makes his glorious return to reign on the earth for a thousand years. So essentially think of Left Behind. Exactly, yes. Left Behind is just, that is the yes. epitome of what is dispensational eschatology. And that stood in contrast to... Um, the post-millennial viewpoint, which predominated in the previous century uh, and argued that really uh, the moral and social activism of the church is itself going to hasten the return of Christ. And in contrast to that, the premillennialists are like, nope, that's not going to happen. Uh, doing any kind of social justice work isn't going to hasten Christ's return because Christ is only going to return when it gets at its worst, and it's just going to keep getting worse. And so to do social justice type things is like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. That kind of becomes the attitude towards social justice issues. And so uh, even though dispensationalism had already been an important thread within the evangelical camp by the late 19th century, it really became a defining feature among you know self-described fundamentalists by the, the 40s and 50s. And so... Part of that was because of guys like Moody who embraced this and preached it. There was the Schofield Bible. There was all these resources that were deployed into kind of teaching this. Um, I think also uh, in conjunction with that, the post-millennial view kind of fell out of favor by the mid-century 
uh, the mid 20th century because you know we had two world wars, we had the Holocaust, we had the birth of the atomic bomb, we were in the midst of a cold war where you know nuclear annihilation was just you know something we were thinking about every day, and so all of that kind of tends towards uh, making you less optimistic about ushering in the age of Christ with you know moral and cultural transformation, and so the premillennial view, like well if you look around, it starts starting to make a little, lot more sense, and there's a lot of resources and a lot of people advocating for it. That kind of became the main view and as a byproduct of that um social justice kind of got put on the back burner because the ship's going down while you're rearranging the deck chairs right and that's where you have the um just mindset shift among christians that are instead of let's go into the world and be the light of christ you kind of have this uh what is it maranatha like lord come quickly we are in desperate need of you to come quickly because the the world is falling around us and we just need to hold tight to you until you return um, because surely your return is any day now based on what we're looking at around us. So it really was a pivot of instead of being actively engaged within the communities of showing Christ, it's like um, let's hunker down and hold tight to Christ until he returns because he's coming any day now. Like we grew weary in doing good. Yeah. And really what happened is like we we were pretty vocal about being anti-communistic, the evangelical movement was, because that was seen as an existential threat. Literally, they have nukes pointed yeah, at us. Yeah, exactly. But when it came to racial justice, economic justice, we were a lot less conversant in those things. And so by the mid-century, that's kind of becoming the evangelical fundamentalistic culture. And it's into that that uh, Carl Henry writes his famous book, The Uneasy Conscience of Modern Fundamentalism. And he's basically, he argues, it's a, it's a short book, but he argues like, hey, just because a lot of the modernists got into the social gospel movement, and just because you think Jesus is returning, that doesn't mean that you give up your responsibility to be salt and light in the world. And in that book, he writes this, there is a growing awareness in fundamentalist circles that despite orthodox insistence upon revelation and redemption, Evangelical Christianity has become increasingly inarticulate about the social reference of the gospel. And so that's what Henry saw as the problem, and he called out in 1946, 1947. I can't remember exactly what year um, it, it was written. It was written right after the, the Second World War. Um, so he kind of saw that clearly and was calling evangelicals to, to be better in that. And uh, a lot of people agreed with him, um, but a lot of evangelicals did not. And so as a result, many evangelicals continued to fight for segregation all the way through the civil rights movement and never really captured a, a vision for social justice uh, other than like we have to stop communism. Well, and unfortunately, when it comes to even things like segregation, um, American Christians were so uh, just settled into the cultural view that they actually saw segregation as a leading to the end times, like a leading to more uh, disasters coming around us. And here is another marker to show us that, which is which is really sad when you think about it. I mean, um, it's just so twisted how we can view um, treating people fairly and equally and giving everyone same opportunities, regardless of the color of their skin, just because of the sake of, um, them being humans themselves, like let's treat everyone fairly. But the idea of that becoming America 
it scared a lot of the evangelical Christians and they saw it similar to the other threats that were happening to America at that time. Yeah, I mean, so there was a couple of things happening. There was one that's like, well, that's the liberal thing is to want to integrate. Uh, You know, the liberals who are going to tear down our society, they want to do it. So I'm already kind of suspect of it. And you know what? Even if they're kind of right, like, and we should be an integrated society and, you know, African-Americans should have rights. Jesus is coming back anyways. I'll yep. let the politicians worry about yeah. that. We're not going to stick our noses in that. Mm-hmm. So kind I of on the spectrum. I Christian over here by myself. Yeah, so yeah. kind of on the spectrum of like highly um, motivated theologically. And uh, on the other hand, uh, because of your dispensational theology, politically apathetic to yeah. the issue of integration and so like there was there was a spectrum of of Mm -hmm. belief in terms of like how much you opposed civil rights within the evangelical movement um but it was particularly in the south it was much more animated being Mm -hmm. anti-integration uh whereas in other places it was there may have been just more apathy uh and also at the same time you did have evangelical leaders who were stepping forward uh into the fray and were a counter narrative to that but we can see the the threads of the anti-wokeness uh movement within uh the modernist fundamentalist debate uh within the mid-century kind of the dispensationalism being at its peak of uh, popularity, and then all the way through into the civil rights movement. And um, it was really just like this cocktail of social factors and theological factors, each one influencing the other one back and forth. They were kind of creating this, um, just this mindset of uh, whatever the liberal social justice issues are, those are necessarily something I should be suspicious of. And so you see that all throughout the civil rights movement, um, all the way up until the moment where uh, integration is pretty much inevitable. And so it's it's kind of this crazy thing because um, people had built whole theological systems around this the same way they had built uh, theological systems around slavery. And then once society changed, they, they didn't necessarily like change their view, but they just kind of adjusted. And so like, in many ways, evangelicalism never really addressed uh, the poor theology, the slaveholder theology, and then later the segregationist theology. But then America integrated, and we kind of just stopped talking about it. But give it a couple of decades, and things kind of calm down a little bit. And by the time you get to the 1990s, um, that's when we have this big movement towards the racial reconciliation movement. Promise Keepers was a big part of this, um, but it was just it was something in the evangelical air during that time that that we're gonna have racial reconciliation, and so uh, that's when you kind of see the rise of like we're a multi ethnic church, we're gonna plant a multi ethnic church, a multiracial church. You had the Promise Keepers with the racial reconciliation. That phrase, racial reconciliation, became something of a buzz term. And uh, what's interesting about that is that. Uh, it was effective within evangelical spaces. You you began to see diversification of congregations. Um, there's a, a study that I'll link to in the show notes where it shows like year over year and decade over decade, uh, the number of churches who have at least 20% uh, a non-white membership has like doubled in the percentiles hmm. uh, over the course of years. But the reason why it was so successful is because it wasn't a social justice movement. Like it was not systemic. It was all about like personal like relationships 
and like personal reconciliation, uh, which is good, and it it proved effective in many ways. Um, but because the the social justice issue was ignored for the pragmatic reason that it would torch the whole movement, anyways, um, the kind of underlying sickness kind of remained there in a lot of ways. And uh, when we get to the mid 2010s. Um, and we see the rise of Black Lives Matter, who is calling for social justice, racial justice. Uh, that's when the racial reconciliation movement within evangelicalism, it really kind of starts to crumble. And, um, you know, it's still on life support at this point, but I don't think anybody's really taking it seriously anymore. Like, certainly not packing out, you know, 50,000 seat auditoriums for the promise keepers to talk about racial reconciliation. It's just not something that is... Uh, on the forefront anymore because with the rise of Black Lives Matter um, and just this whole like call for reform, this renewed call for reform, um, a lot of evangelicals have switched gears to say, aren't the people who run the Black Lives Matter organization Marxists? And they are. Um, But they're saying like because this specific leadership of this specific organization is Marxist, the whole project of racial justice is Marxist. And so if one of you is a heretic, all of you is a heretic. And people who are in the evangelical movement who are hearkening back to a battle that was ours 100 years ago uh, are, now, gospel, right? are now lumped in with this mm-hmm. quote-unquote wokeness. Yeah. And that's where you get this very animated um, anti-wokeness movement. And just like with the civil rights movement, just like with the abolitionist movement, just like with every movement prior to that that was calling for a greater justice, there are evangelicals who are absolutely opposed. I am among them. The are opposed to this anti-wokeness thing, this CRT fear that, you know, white people are going to be the oppressed group now. Uh, there's plenty of evangelicals that are not in that camp, but it, it does represent a pretty large constituency within uh, the evangelical movement. Um, and I'll say this too, which is interesting because if you go back to, um, say the civil rights movement, there's this, there's this difference between, um, the kind of quote unquote thought leaders of the time on these issues Mm -hmm. and the rank and file people of the, uh, the churches. So like, for example, if you go back to the civil rights movement in, um, in the South, specifically in the SBC, uh, what is now called their, uh, ethics and religious liberty commission. I think it was called the Christian life commission. Uh, at the time, it's kind of like the public policy arm of the Southern Baptist convention. They had come out early on, uh, like right after, um, Brown versus board of education. And they had endorsed integration uh, and so, like, these people kind of at the top of the denomination who are all, you know, seminary trained and they're thinking about these things all the time, they came out and like, yeah, obviously, theologically speaking, integration, is, this seems like this is something that Jesus endorses. Um, but they they almost lost their behinds on contributions to the cooperative fund because the rank-and-file people in the Baptist churches that they were supposedly leading, like, basically revolted and say, like, if you don't, like, shut up about that, we're going to stop giving all of our giving. So, like, there was this big disparity between kind of, like, the quote unquote, you know, today you would call them the 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 uh, evangelical elites or the elitists, mm-hmm. uh, who are like, you know, you're just sitting there thinking, and the people who are like, you know, we're we're the red blooded American evangelicals who are out here fighting the fight against the school board, 
um, it's kind of like that same dynamic because there's uh, a lot of plenty of smart people who are saying like, hey, this whole like anti-CRT thing, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, you're you're kind of fighting uh, an invisible boogeyman that isn't really there. Uh, this whole like anti wokeness thing, um, you're you're coming out pretty racist and pretty mm. <laughs> pretty awful. Yeah. Um, you obviously there's issues and concerns here. Uh, I think particularly with the rise of LGBTQ and all the the political implications that that has and how that can infringe on religious liberty. There's a lot of nuanced conversations to be had, but this just like plain anti wokeness thing, like most people who are kind of would be in the elite category who are like college educated seminary trained uh leaders and denominations like they're all kind of like yeah like we we get that that's not the way forward but the rank and file people in evangelical churches um are just you know it's a steady stream of like conservative cable news right that is like coloring all these things and, and producing a very different perspective mm-hmm Yeah, well, and it goes back to, um, for example, like the civil rights movement. Uh, You had a lot of civil rights leaders that were leading the charge of that movement. But this movement was even larger than the leaders themselves, right? Like it was happening across the nation. There were people um, that maybe didn't even know the names of the civil rights leaders at that time. Uh, but they themselves were feeling the need that the nation needed to change and move in this direction because they saw the great injustices that were happening around them. I think that's the same thing that's happening with like um, anti-CRT, anti-wokeness and Black Lives Matter. What's happening is we're looking at Black Lives Matter as the actual like organization um, and institution itself rather than the movement. And we're calling out the leaders there, which absolutely (laughs) the leaders of the black lives matter organization are marxists and there are things that we should be concerned about but instead of looking at the movement itself or isolating it to the organization and saying because of these leaders we're not going to have any part of it and completely neglecting the change that needs to happen within um, our communities and within our nations all because we want to I guess have a way out. I mean, I can't quite explain why we want to hold to these particular leaders only and say, well, if this is what they're claiming, then we're not going to have anything to do with it, even though there's a greater movement happening among the nation that isn't necessarily tied to these leaders at all. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so we're so yes, we're correct in in calling out these leaders and the fact that they are Marxists and having issues with them and having issues with their particular agenda. But then to completely neglect the fact that there is something happening still within our nation that is treating uh, black lives as less than and not wanting to talk about it and not wanting to have anything to do with it just because we say, well, why would we do that? Because those leaders are Marxists. Well, there's still an issue happening. Like, can we stop having um, those leaders be the scapegoat, really, of why we don't have to address it? And that's what's happening. Right. So it's the same conversation from like 100, exactly. 110, 120 yeah. years ago. And we just want to continue to um, hold on to whatever, I guess, uh, truth that will save face for us of why we don't have to embark on this difficult journey. 
of correcting something that should have been corrected a very long time ago and acknowledging things that are so deeply rooted in our systems that continue to harm and mistreat generation after generation and uh, we just want to continue to like turn a blind eye to it or justify why we can't be part of it because of this one person and um, the view that they have, which rightfully so, we shouldn't support that person. But um, to walk away from all of it, to throw the baby out with the bathwater is what we're doing over and over and over again. Yeah. And I think partly that's because there's something of a tribal instinct to like circle the wagons when you sense that there might be some kind of external threat yeah. that is approaching. And so because what you're describing is like it's kind of seems to blow up the whole system. It makes it less simple of like who's the good guys, who's the bad guys uh, in terms of like who's our people, who's their people, who can we build a coalition around uh, to advance our agenda. Um it, it, but it's all kind of like tribalistic thinking that we kind of mask in, you know, theology. But what do you think are like some of the ways that evangelicals can begin to break ourselves free from tribal thinking so that we can remain true to orthodox Christian teaching, uh, but also um, not be ridiculous in in the, the, the social movements that we ignore out of hand uh, for some imagined theological reason? I think one of the big ways that we can break out of it is to maybe step away from our uh, preferred news outlet networks for a little bit of time. Um, Because what's happening is we're living in such silos. Um, We're living in our own communities that think like us, that talk like us, that act like us. And we're shrinking the number of people that are in our circles that have different opinions on some pretty big things. At one point in our country, uh, you would constantly be bumping into people that had different opinions from you and you had to engage with them and you had to be polite to them and you had to be kind to them. Um, We're engaging with people online um, and we feel like we don't have to be polite and we don't have to be kind because we're like hiding behind our keyboards, right? And we don't actually have to face anyone face to face. So I think some of the very practical ways of beginning to step out is to stop um, sticking yourself into the silos that we so naturally fall into because of the advancements of technology. Uh, Technology is great in a lot of many ways, but I think it's um, it has perfected its ability to pull out the worst in us Um, and to only feed us the information that will already outrage us, that will already um, make us angry and upset, and will information that we're already going to agree with, instead of challenging what we think in a um, polite and kind way, we just want to get up in arms about everything. And sometimes it takes stepping out of those um, like digital communities. And even the people that you pick up the phone and call or text that are in those same digital communities as you, sometimes it takes stepping outside of that and just talking with somebody that's on the other end of it and listening to them intentionally, like sit down face to face with them, talk to them and uh, do that with the intent of listening, not with the intent of uh, throwing your talking points back that you've been hearing 
from whatever uh, cable news network you're listening to, right? Uh, because like I said, when it comes to um, issues like the ones that we're particularly talking about today with anti-CRT, anti-wokeness, um, anti-Black Lives Matter, uh, a lot of it is uh, distorted information or only one-sided. And so we want to only see it as this uh, evil movement that's happening. But if you really stop and listen, some of it is it's a very human movement of let's treat people fairly. Let's recognize the ways that people are not treated equally and fairly. And let's fix that. And Christians shouldn't be against that. Right? Right. Maybe the way we go about doing that, maybe we shouldn't agree with certain people in the way they go about doing that. Like with, with violence and um, like burning down communities, like that's not the route to go. But we should be able to agree with the ethos of what it is that we want to do, right? Right. Like we should agree, yes, treating people fairly matters. And we're currently not doing that. So how do we fix it? Unfortunately, within the silos that we're living in and the information that we're being fed, the idea of treating people fairly outrages us. Right. Like The, the idea of caring and noticing that there's holes in our system that are allowing a certain group of people to be treated unfairly over and over and over again, century after century, uh, like that should bother us to the point of correction instead of angering us to the point of we're not going to do anything about this and they're the evil ones. Yeah. So um, I don't really know if I answered your question, but also maybe adding to your question is uh, I'm just real reminded of what Paul says in Galatians of like, do not grow weary in doing good. And what's happening is we've grown weary in doing good. And we're now only wanting to live on the defense um, of guarding and protecting at all costs. What is our like Christian nation and anything that we feel like is going to go against that, we're going to like pull out our swords and like <laughs> joust you. Uh, but instead, we should first be thinking of how do we do good in the midst of this mm. and not how do we um, defend our rights and defend us and defend um, our values, but pausing and thinking how do we do good in the midst of this? Because Jesus doesn't need us to defend him. Right. Jesus is going to do what he is going to do because he is in control of all things. And it's not to say that we just like lay on our backs and say like, whatever, we can't do anything about it. But stepping forward and doing good and not feeling like our role is to defend and go to war for values but that how in the midst of this um, do we step in this with the goodness of Christ and not with like the sword of Christ. Right. Yeah. I think going back to just like being exposed to people on the other side of whatever political aisle, I can't remember where I was reading, but it was talking about the rise of political polarization. And part of the reason for that being that there are less kind of like cross-sectional um 
uh, spaces for us to interact with people that we would disagree with, like these shared public spaces where you can have someone who voted for Trump and someone who voted for uh, not Trump, and they they have to uh, interact with one another because they're a part of the same community in this same communal space, and we just don't have as many of those opportunities, and instead we're on our own online algorithms that are f- taking us farther and farther left or farther and farther right and really right. just removing us from reality mm-hmm. when the reality is that people are far more reasonable mm-hmm. than than you would think a lot of the times yeah. and they're also far more unreasonable than you would expect but in those moments of being unreasonable when you have the relational capital there that's what allows us to not get so animated about mm-hmm. um things where we might disagree and then we can start to see where the common problems lie and then instead of arguing over whether the problem actually exists Mm. We can argue about the best way to solve it. Yeah. Like we're not even at the starting line on a lot of this stuff. We're not. Where we, we can't even agree that that's right is right and wrong is wrong. Mm. And I think that that is, um, yeah, that's just tragic because within the evangelical movement, we can't even get on the same page of like, yes, there should be justice in society. That's what social justice is. It is a vision for a just and good society. But to say that that's say Marxist that's and bad. evil is yeah. it like we like maybe we need a new term, but like every new term we yes. come up with, like that one gets demonized too. I like we just like we're, there's just an issue that mm-hmm. um, that that we need to break free from and be vocal about that we're not going to sit inside the box of yeah. woke anti-woke uh we want to stand true on if even if you think what i'm saying is liberal i'm not saying it because it's a liberal thing i'm saying it because that's what i find in the mandates given to us by jesus yes exactly and what what you're talking about is this like what was the term you used cross like cross-sectional cross-sectional yeah that's the term i was trying to like search my brain for earlier because i read it as well and uh what that is really describing is a person who can be cross-sectional, a person who can exist in the world that I think that what we read was uh, an example of um, someone who drives a Prius, um, eats red meat, voted for Trump, um, and somebody else who drives like this massive pickup truck but is vegan. Like they're cross-sectional in the way that Yeah, and those people existing in the same sense. community. Like yeah. it's... You're like, wait, <laughs> wait, you voted for Trump and you drive a Prius like that doesn't make any sense in my mind anymore. Like you're you're making me go crazy or wait, you drive this like massive pickup truck, but you're a vegan and you care about the planet like those things don't fit together. And we've we've started to section ourselves off into such um stereotypes that we actually are living within these stereotypes of if you voted for this person, you drive this kind of car, you eat this kind of food and you attend these kinds of events. Um, but people need to be more nuanced than that. We need to be able to, um, I agree with this policy over here, but I don't agree with this person over here because what we're using as our starting point is how is it that Jesus has called me to look into the world versus how is it that the Republican party has caused, has called me to look into the world or how is it that the democratic party has called me to look into the world? So when we use Christ as, um, 
the one who is leading our worldview and leading the way that we actually interact with other people, that should bring about uh, confusion to the rest of the world. And it should bring about um, a nuance and complexity that's currently not existing. Um, And it's a bit of a tragedy that it can't exist anymore because I have a feeling we would agree on far more things if we would step Just away get in from the room. Yeah. Yeah. If we would step away from our tribes and leave those things at the door, because the tribe that we should be existing in is one that's centered on Christ. And that's not, I don't even think that tribe exists right now. Right. There's multiple tribes. With, There's multiple that tribes that ways. sit underneath that. Not um, even under auspices of theological differences, but just right. on the issue of like, are you a woke church or an anti-woke yeah. church? Yeah. And even even the idea of um, the one term that I'm, I'm specifically thinking about right now is um, when somebody asks, like, are you pro Black Lives Matter? And I'm like, um, yes, of course. Like, why would I not be pro that? And then they immediately start telling me about the Marxist leader and do I know what's happening within that um, organization? And I'm thinking, but move that aside as a movement. Do Black Lives Matter? Yes. Are they currently being treated that way? No. How do we change that? Right. Like that seems rather simple, right? And I have a feeling both sides would agree upon that. But instead, we want to take whatever this term is that has been manipulated and um, morphed into so many different things that it means different that when I say I support Black Lives Matter, um, somebody on one side is going to immediately call me a like heretic and a liberal and certainly I'm not a follower of Christ. Uh, and then somebody on the other end is going to say like, well, great, you actually genuinely care about the fact that there's an entire race of people within our society that's not being cared for well. Yeah. So sometimes we just need to get rid of the labels too and have conversations with one another. Yeah. I feel like whenever someone asks me a subtle question like that, I'm like, can you just tell me what you're, it feels like you, <laughs> you're trying to tell me something. Yeah. Can you just tell me the thing without yeah. audience participation, please? Yeah. Um, or, or even firing back like, well, what does that mean to you? Right. And then you're actually like, oh, now I understand what you're talking about versus uh, what I thought you were talking about is something completely different. Right. Yeah. So I think the, uh, to make a long story short. Do not uh, feel weary in doing good. <laughs> Uh, because it's a mess. It was, it's yeah. been, but it's it's been a mess for a hundred years. I don't know if exactly. that's like more encouraging or less encouraging that we're fighting the same battles that we've been fighting for a hundred years. Mm. I mean, but we are. But and, and and really, like the more you know that, like the, these yeah. threads are somewhat just, I guess, innate to American evangelical Christianity that we just have these impulses towards. Um, trying to defend orthodoxy, which is a good thing, but then in the midst of defending orthodoxy, defending the culture in which that current moment uh, is the people that are defending orthodoxy. Did that, did that statement make sense? We're like, we, we are sort trying of. to defend right teaching, but then in so doing, we expand the bubble to, um, to have that include other things. Mm. And all, a lot of those other things actually contradict good sound biblical doctrine right when it comes to how do we interact with the world and what does it look like to contribute to justice and goodness and mercy Mm -hmm. in the world 
Yeah, so when we look back on the historical record, uh, we can see that some evangelicals have sacrificed their theology to pursue social justice. We can see that others have sacrificed social justice to maintain their theological affiliation. And there's uh, other people that have just done a a very poor job at both. Um, But also in the historical record, we'll find people who pursued social justice because of their theology. And they have often been in the minority within the evangelical movement. They have often been much maligned. They still are today. Um, However, evangelicals today, we would do well to heed their warnings of the past and the present and really take to heart this vision of a future church and a future society that is more just, that is more equitable, that is more inclusive, uh, and ultimately that is closer to the heart of God. Thanks for listening to the Kainos Project podcast. Thank you also to our partners at Life Audio. Visit lifeaudio.com to find dozens of other faith-centered podcasts in the network, including shows about prayer, Bible study, parenting, and more. If you enjoyed hanging out with us today, consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a rating and review. And be sure to visit our website, kainosproject.com, for more helpful resources. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. The love of God is immeasurable. It's unchanging. It's indescribable. Because God loves you so much, you can sleep through the night in peace. With Abide Bible Sleep Meditation, you can fall asleep fast with relaxing sleep stories based on Scripture. To start listening now, go to lifeaudio.com or search your favorite podcast app for Abide Bible Sleep Meditation. You can also download the Abide app for more biblical meditations at abide.com.